You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am joined, as always, by Sexy Irish Sean and SEO Wizard Rick, but today we have a new guest, a special guest. His name is Ryan Wienko with Paddle Creek Games, and he is developing, well, he's the lead developer on a game called Fractured Veil, which I'm really excited about. It is a video game, and before all of our board game listeners just tune out, first of all, don't. Don't you dare tune out because we're going to be talking about video <laughs> games a little bit. And second of all, all of these lessons, this guy who's a video game developer pulled them from listening to our board game development conversations. And so many of these lessons, it just so happens, so easily translate in between these mediums. I think that video games are incredibly social, incredibly interesting, and many of the lessons, the ways that we develop audiences and other things like that translate beautifully oh first of all ryan what's up nerd hey yo it's so so good to be here this is like coming full circle moment for me i've always dreamt as a little boy to one day be on the crowdfunding nerds podcast and (laughs) this is so exciting to to just be living that dream so thank you so much for having me you actually listened to our podcast didn't you and that's how you heard about us oh yeah so i mean uh, not not to not to take anything away from the podcast, but it's not like I had any choice. There's one really source for Kickstarter knowledge and entertainment as well, thanks to the banter that goes back and forth. And so there was there's nothing about video games out there. And I went through some of the other ones, and it's kind of like, well, they they give you that really surface level information of you go get a go get a mailing list, and you should start a Facebook group, and then that's the end of the conversation. But you guys dove so deep into some of these issues that I was like, man, these these people really know what they're talking about. And then we could talk about my whole journey to becoming a client of yours, but it all started from just getting hooked on the amazing content that you guys are producing on a weekly basis. Oh, Thank shucks. you. We just, yeah, we hardly <laughs> prep at all. <laughs> Deep uh, just called your game a video game. Uh, I believe it's a little bigger than that. It's uh, a uh, futuristic, apocalyptic MMO uh as opposed to just a video game? Yeah, so we have a like, there's a saying, oh, not a saying, there's, well, there's an inside joke that we have. It's an online MMO survival game. So essentially we are doing all of the hardest things possible about game development in one space at the same time. So it is a, it's a survival game, which means we're essentially letting players do whatever they want, whenever they want. And we're mixing in MMO, which means we're making, we're allowing a lot of players to do whatever they want, wherever they want in the world. Definitely not your grandmother's video game here. We're going, we're going all out. I had a friend and he's married with a full-time job, has like three kids. And I looked at his Steam account one day. He was clocking in 30 plus hours into <sighs> Rust. I was like, how are oh you doing God. this with, with a full-time job and kids? And when I found out what he was doing, he was leaving his computer on all the time mm-hmm. and had the volume at max and he worked from home. So whenever he could hear something happening, he'd just jump on his computer, defend himself and then go back to work. Right. <laughs> yeah, because a big part, so Rust is a really big reference and inspiration for us. And a part of that is you build a big base and then you have to defend it once people come and try to take your stuff. So you would just, yeah, you would just be, your character would just be sleeping in your base, I guess. And then your friend would just hear somebody rustling in the bushes and then 
put the baby down, go defend my base, come back, feed the kids again. But no, it's, it's, it's definitely a genre that gets those, that kind of engagement. I was speaking to uh, a streamer named uh, Sir Winter last night of just the people that really get into these games, you'll go to their Steam profiles and there'll be like 7,000 hours, 8,000 hours logged in these games. I mean, that's the interesting thing. I, I imagine there are, there are a lot of Rust players that have been playing Rust for 10 years, but I know there are like Anarchy Online players and World of Warcraft players that have been playing for 15 years or however long. It's, yep, it's it's something that can really suck you in for sure. And that's something obviously to, to be careful of as well, is especially having... Um, is eight kids you have, Andrew? <laughs> I lost count <laughs> like two oh, kids yeah. ago. <laughs> six now. <laughs> six, oh, six, six kids. So it's just like, whew, that's, that's, that's a balancing act to strike there. I actually am working on an MMO myself and it's just text-based. And I, there's so many things. It's so complicated oh. to uh, put things together. So, I mean, you and your team, I mean, I can't believe all the work that's just involved. How big is your team? So first of all, kudos. I want access to that text-based MMO that that excites me. Have you watched the documentary called Lamp? I have not. So there's a if you have a chance, go grab it. I think you can just watch it online. It's all about the origins of text-based games, muds, and leading up to text-based MMOs. So I give that guy shout-outs every time I can. Lamp is the documentary. So our team is we're a small indie team. So we, our core team is uh, five, six, if you include myself. Uh, and we've been working on this game for five years straight. And then we have contract artists that will come in. So, for example, this month, I think we have three or four contract artists uh, that come in and do a bunch of stuff. And then we were like, OK, we need to reallocate those resources somewhere else. And then then they'll go away. So, yeah, it's it's a game that should probably have a team of 20 or 30 people. But what we what we lack in team size, we make up in tenacity. Yeah. And, you know, being able to run for five years, I oh. mean, that's, you know, you have, um, I mean, you're not like a small operation. You've got investors and, and things like that. Isn't that right? We have our, we have our founders. So there's three founders of the company and that's, that's the source of all of the investments. So there are, mm -hmm. there are no outside investors. We don't have a publisher where there's no strings attached to this project. We are that's making awesome. the game that we've always wanted to make. And we needed a certain level of freedom to do it. It just means that it's taking a heck of a lot longer. Because mm -hmm. if you look at a game like Ark, uh, Ark Survival Evolved, I think they cranked that game out in nine months. They had a million and a half dollars and a decent sized team. And it was pretty buggy when they launched it. But it shows what you can do with a little bit of a larger team. But I think for us, because this was a, such a learning process as well, coming back to the MMO anal analogy, we just had to grind and grind and grind and grind for years to really get into the groove and then go after those big boss fights yeah. engineering wise that we're doing right now. That's fantastic. I think that uh, something you said really strikes me about the best companies. They all start out with this um, philosophy of we're gamers that are making a thing we wanted to play. Mm -hmm. um, I love hearing that. And I think that as just kind of a, from a philosophical perspective, all the things that you're doing, every bit of marketing that you put out, every, you know, all of that, you're in essence, you're kind of just talking to yourself, you know, and you're speaking I mean, to those others that are like you. I do that a lot. Sometimes people look at me strange down the street when, uh, when I'm doing it in public, but a lot of talking to myself happens and yeah, it's, it's, I mean, so 
um, we're talking we, we're, t we're talking to ourselves and especially for the first few years we, we most certainly were but something which i'm sure is true with board games as well is as soon as we started getting our community built up and engaged we started inviting a lot more people to that conversation and now it's a group talk that drives yeah. this project more than anything and so but you're right i mean we, we went into this so uh, so a lot of people do this and i should clarify for us we've been making games for 20 22 years i have a we have a work for hire studio called iron belly studios as well we've worked on 300 350 projects so we've cut our teeth on game development for the past decade and a half and accumulated all of that knowledge and that experience and then said, okay, let's dump that onto the survival game because we're, we're all survival players. The survival game that we always wanted to make. Um, that sounds amazing. It, yeah, it, it, it's a dream come true for sure. It's, it's a grind, but it's really easy to remind yourself that this grind is doing the thing that you've dreamt of doing your whole life. And, you know, to have a team that is dedicated for, for that long is uh, very uncommon. You know, I, f I usually find that people are who are willing to jump in to, to you know, to found a company and, and that kind of thing. Oftentimes, at least one of those people, maybe two out of three more is doing for notoriety and not necessarily ready for the amount of work required. Oh my goodness. Right. Um, right. And it sounds I mean, you clearly have all three founding partners pulling a lot of weight in order to get this far, even in five years, you know? Yeah. Huge. I mean, most people are, uh, to, you know, to your point, most people are not prepared for the grind that's going to come along with something like this mm -hmm. in the sense of you just have to spend a decent amount of money doing things the wrong way uh, before you figure out the right way to do them. And it, it just takes a lot of wherewithal and a lot of grit and just, it really helps if you're passionate about what you're doing. And I think you've talked about this on the podcast many times you also have to be humble going into this whole process that humility has to carry with it the sense of i don't know necessarily what i'm doing even though we've been doing this for 20 years i don't necessarily know what i'm doing and i have to be willing to start over and relearn and start over and learn and i think mm -hmm. that's where a lot of people probably hit a wall because it, it's it's way harder than you think it is yeah yeah absolutely i've been reading uh, this book it's by uh, joe uh, garrett and oh, nice. It's the uh, 13th century rules of selling. He was the number one salesperson in the world. And he said that he always kept a photo on his desk of when he was 12 years old. He used to sh shine shoes. And he did that in New York. So he had like a, he came from basically his father's the deadbeat dad, came up from like a single home, had to go out early and like provide for his family. So he started off shining shoes. So that's where he started. And he's became one of the most successful salesmen in the world. So that helped him stay humble oh, and to remember where yeah. he came from to understand that that struggle and the pain of being in that circumstance so i thought that was really interesting that that was a practice that he did have you guys have you guys uh seen mr t's shoes you know what i'm talking about <laughs> mr t no. from the a team guy wears yeah, all yeah. those gold chains and everything like that he has the gnarliest most disgusting shoes that are duct taped and like they're they're really like you should buy new shoes and uh they're the same shoes that he wore when he was poor he always wears those shoes all the time, like no matter what, I think, because uh, they keep him humble. I think the most important thing, I don't know how you do this ethically as a parent, but it's like having your kids go through strife and challenge 
I was, my first job was a ditch digger at 14. My second job was a dishwasher at 15. My third job was working 12 hour shifts, checking lottery tickets is like the most, and you just build up this appreciation for what hard work is working in construction, working in the worst possible jobs. And I know that my parents, uh, they went out of their way to find like that dishwashing job for me, as opposed to some clerk in an accountant firm or something like that, because mm -hmm. they wanted to instill in me, even though we were like, we were normal middle-class people, they wanted to instill in me this sense of, if you don't work your butt off, if you don't do well in school, if you don't apply yourself in life, there's a ditch digging job, just wait with your name on it, waiting around the corner. And <laughs> whether it's, I'm not going to hang a, a a picture of my bloody hands after a day of ditch digging on my desk, but I hang that picture in my mind every single day. Yeah, so it certainly motivates. Oh, yeah, you yeah. know, for, for me, what I found really motivated me, I came from a, a weird background. My first job was doing awful manual labor, labor at 14 for my dad. My dad's a civil engineer, uh, retired mm -hmm. now, and I was his chainman. Basically, I oh. was his pack mule. It's another word for right. pack mule. Uh, except I have to like crawl under gross bushes and dig thing, dig things up at, for, right. to find property corners and whatnot. It's the worst. Uh -huh. But yeah. um, I uh, was in a situation where as a kid, I didn't need to work, you know, middle-class family and, and that kind of thing. And my parents just wanted to know that I was home and, and, and although they expected, they pushed school really hard, but not necessarily working a job alongside of the, you know, those things. And, um, mm -hmm. I, I found that the thing that I, that finally motivated me was when I made my goals, rather the achieving of my goals about someone else. So I, I, I found I could actually fail on myself and it would be okay. And which okay. is not a good way to, to kind of go through life. But right? it's human nature to a certain extent. Yeah. And then, but the thing is like, I always found myself drawn into, you know, like groups in high school, you have to do a presentation together in English class or right. whatever. I found that I would never let the team down. I would always take the leadership role of the team and mm -hmm. I would make sure that it, every, the papers were spell checked and whatever, right. We would always get an A. And I found out that if I make my goal about other people, then I will work much harder than if I make it about myself and right. achieving what I want and making money and uh, whatever, you know? So that, that always seemed to work really well for me. Yeah. I mean, you're very fortunate in that sense of that you found that. And I think that's, it's, it's something totally different for every single person, but finding that one thing, it's the same as working out or getting in shape. Some people are going to have a great time at bar class, others are going to have a great time going for a run by themselves, but just going through and trying to find that one thing that really resonates with you and motivates you. It's, uh, it's not just go get in shape. It's go find the thing that makes you want to get in shape. Mm -hmm. And it's not go get rich or go be successful. It's find the thing that makes you want to be successful and realizing that for you, it's, it's groups and it's other people. And for other people, you know, it might be, I don't know, mm -hmm. whatever it is, so find that thing. That's the yeah. moral of the story. And lucky, lucky for you and fortunate. And how blessed are we to have found that thing and be here today, a product of that success. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I had uh, questions, just more curiosity than anything. I wanted to mm -hmm. kind of start out with these about the, uh, the crowd, our podcast, you know? So if Sean wants to know what the most game-changing thing you've ever heard on the podcast was. Oh, e easily the virtuous cycle, hands down. So 
kind of like what we were talking about before. I think it's just going to be different things that resonate with different people for different reasons. And the virtuous cycle, it was like somebody opened a door and I just saw this world of potential in my game designer brain. And I was like, I can take that and put it on steroids with, we call them state machines in AI, where it's like, okay, the the monster runs into a tree. If the monster runs into a tree, then it does this. If it doesn't, then it does this. And so what I did is I heard you talking about that virtuous cycle. And all I heard was like, oh, we're giving our, our email subscribers a quest and they have to go and I'm going to give them something and they're going to do something in return. Like, tell me what you like about survival games. And in exchange, here's an art book. And then what I find, it's a way to create engagement, one, but it's also a way to find the users in your audience who are the most engaged, who are the most interested of your fan base. And as soon as I heard that, I realized, oh, our email campaigns need to have two separate tracks. There needs to be an informational track where we're giving them the information that they want about the game, we're, we're answering questions they might have. And then there's an engagement track, which is let's put them on a quest and we're going to level these people up over the course of two or three months where the first thing is just here's some info about the game. Here's a couple links. Who clicks on those links? And when they click on those links, they get a tag to say they clicked on the links for the level one. Now they're level two. What do we do for level two people? Well, it's going to be a little bit more engaging, but not too much. And we're going to offer them a little bit something more in return. And so we kind of get them used to this cycle of like, oh, I click the link, I answer a few questions, and there's a thank you that comes my way with an art book or with a chance to win a free key or some exclusive content. And not only, again, does it just tell us who's engaged it's not it's not enough to know who's clicking your links it's enough to know how far they're willing to go to support your project and if i can bring all of those people and bring them together i can message them and i can communicate with them and i can engage with them in a totally different way because i know it's going yep. to get results and so i just my game designer brain designed this huge quest line this epic quest <laughs> for these all of our, from the moment they subscribe to the moment that we launch and there's five levels that they go through and we have 20,000 people in our email list right now and there's about 6 or 800 that are like max level and those people are my go-to core fans that I reach out to, I give them information that I don't give anybody else like we ran our Kickstarter video by them first and what, what I did is we recorded five videos, different shirts, different energy levels. I tried a, a South African Irish accent for one because I was so inspired <laughs> by Sean. And what I wanted to do is I'm, I'm delivering the message in I'm comfortable in all of these ways. I'm not putting on I'm not putting on a farce. I'm as comfortable just being really relaxed and talking to you like this as I am just being over the top excited. And I wanted to see to them, like, what resonates the most with you? And we sent that to our, our core group. And the open rates are like 69, 70%. The click-through rates are 42, 48% in this group. And the responses are just paragraphs of just written text telling me, here's what I like and here's what I don't like. Wow. And so it, re it really shows you who you can lean on and who is going to be there for you. And then the other people, what you can do is like what I say, what I, I made a little note here and I said, it's not about product, it's about presentation. First and foremost, when it comes to this, I know these people are interested in survival games because they're clicking on links and they're giving me their email address 
to do a survival game. So I know they like survival games and I know that we have an amazing survival game. And so if I'm presenting it in a way that's not resonating with you and you're not clicking, I'm going to try again a different way. And so what we have in our virtuous cycle is every level that you go through, there are multiple if you didn't click, do this. If you didn't click, do this. And MailChimp mm -hmm. has this great thing called automated customer journeys. And I can have these branching trees that go out to say, okay, you didn't click on that first one. It's kind of like A-B testing, but better. You didn't click on that first one. So four days later, I'm going to send you another email with very similar content. But instead of framing it like this, I'm going to frame it a little bit differently. And we see, we see your standard open rates on the first one, 30%, 35%. And then we see like 20 to 25% on the retries. And then we see 15% on the third retries. So by the end of it, we're actually pulling through like a 75% open rate because I'm changing the message to see what's going to resonate. Yep. And that when I heard you talk about like all of that just exploded in my brain on that <laughs> podcast and I just ran home. And I was talking to my wife and I'm just like going a million miles an hour telling her about, and she's just like, what, what are you speak English, man, speak English. <laughs> and then I, I just got into MailChimp and I started setting these things up. And that was the most exciting thing is when they started working and yeah. that kind of, that kind of led me into, oh, okay, I need to work with these guys now because what they're saying is, is, is truth. And it's so applicable to, to what I'm doing. That's awesome. I love that. You know, um, there were a couple of concepts that were so, you, you know, you so you took the virtuous cycle concept, which is for the benefit of those listening is basically the way that you would bank the results of you, the marketing effort that you're doing. So you've got, you know, right. your email list, your Facebook group, Discord server, and you're filling those up with members and warm bodies that are somewhat interested in your thing. And then you took it a step further, which is to kind of you know, and this is what is the whole purpose. After you get an email on your list, you want to turn that person from like someone who has an innocent level of curiosity into somebody who's a hardcore rabid fan that's going to buy the thing no matter what it costs, that's going to evangelize the thing to all of their friends and, and that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, if you're able to do that really well, you can have a hardcore dedicated group of people that will pay more than the average person will champion your product. And, you know, every one of those people you make, you are, you're actually making another five or 10 sales. They all become your salespeople. And I mean, that's, that's huge, huge. Yeah. I mean, uh, so Fracture Veil is like a very community driven project and all a lot of the best ideas for the new ones of this game come from the community. So on top of what you've just described, also the big thing for me is that they are the people that are going to be talking in our discord server. They're the ones that are giving me feedback. That's going to help make the game that they've always wanted to play and make the best game for our core audience as well. And it's like, you just get so many bonus points as you level these people up. Uh, not yeah. only in terms of the success of the, the campaign, hopefully, but in terms of helping you just make a better product. Absolutely. And and on top of that, these are the people that you want to listen to that mm -hmm. will, uh, you know, for me with Deliverance, I found, you know, I made the game that I wanted to play. But as you said, you know, you've got this core group of people who it starts to become a little bit more um, of a group effort to, right. to you know, in essence, they, you know, my core group teach me what stands out to them about the game. 
you know, right. I have certain things that I think are really cool. Like, Hey, I love the art. I love the way the angels interact and this and that, but the, the, but those people teach me in essence, how I need to pitch it to others. It's like, if, if I want to find other people like these hardcore, you know, advocates, I need to learn what, like what word strings get them excited mm -hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing. And they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they, yeah. They, they're, they're not shy. That, and that's what we love about them. They're, they're engaged by definition. Um, so that, that was, that was really the, the game changer for me. And, and I mean, that's just one example of many, but it was an example of you guys went beyond kind of the surface level stuff and started talking really about like a formula for success in a way that I think a lot of other podcasts that are like yours don't do because they maybe they hold it close to their chest and they're like, well, we'll give you this taste, but if you want to know more, you know, yeah. pony up the cash. <laughs> and that didn't, that didn't happen with you guys. And so then, then it was just like, then I'll, yeah. I mean, I can talk about my, my process as a leader for how I decided to eventually work with you guys, but that was, that really started into motion that process. Yeah. Our philosophy is like, you know, we can tell you how we wash windows, but that doesn't mean you're going to want to wash your own windows. That's sort of how we take <laughs> right. the approach. Nor, nor necessarily do you want to work with somebody that has absolutely zero idea how to wash a window or what, what a window is. I mean, there's people obviously that this isn't their forte in any way, but sure. it's probably so much easier to work with someone that at least can speak the language that you're speaking to a certain degree. You know, I mean, you eventually hired us. We're actively working for you right now, you know, before working your Kickstarter me. launch or working, working we, with we, you. Indeed. We are, we are one big family in this endeavor. What kind of caused you to go from just simply like listening to the podcast and doing the things to, uh, to bringing us on board and for the benefit of everyone listening, what service did you bring us on board for? And so Eventually, in the beginning, it was kind of like all of the things I wanted, I brought you on board for part of it. I mean, if I'm honest, part of it was like, I just wanted to say thank you for the amazing information that you provided. Next is I wanted to hear Rick's glorious voice as much as I possibly could and Sean's beautiful beard as much as I possibly could. So if I could get those two men in my life, that was, that was a big plus. That's but awesome. Rick, you have to grow your beard. <laughs> it doesn't grow. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I, I I appreciate more than the beard on you. You've you've got a lot more to a lot more to give in terms of that glorious voice. But in terms of that process that that I went through, the first was just evaluating. And so I think for me to get the most out of a relationship with a group of people like yourselves, I need to get my hands dirty and I need to be able to understand at a little bit of a deeper level kind of what you guys are doing so I can evaluate how you're doing it. Not to tell you how to do your jobs, but there's so many consultants out there that we've worked with over the years. Luckily, we've found some great ones for this campaign, but who, you know, they come in and I'm just like, you guys don't know anything more than I do at the end of the day. You're just charging 400 bucks an hour or whatever it is. And so I wanted to deepen my understanding. So the first thing that I did as a leader was I took what you were talking about and I implemented them and I understood how they worked and why they worked. I'm very fortunate because I come from some experience in the mobile game space and mobile games are all about user acquisition and mm -hmm. Facebook ads is a huge platform for smaller mobile games to do user acquisition. So I was able to already understand what you were talking about with the Facebook ads and a lot of that stuff. So I got in and I started creating some campaigns in Facebook using some of what you applied and then it worked. 
Like mm-hmm. the, it, it didn't work as well as obviously it's working with Sean manning the helm, but it worked. I started getting, you know, very, very fortunate in the beginning in the very, like going back years, we have a creative that we use. That was like an original illustration that we did five years ago. And we just started using it a couple of years ago. And it still to this day has like, it's infuriating because it has the best click-through rates almost of any of our creatives. And we've made hundreds of creatives at this point. We have A-B <laughs> tested dozens and dozens and spent yeah. hundreds of dollars. And then there's just this one illustration that some artists did five years ago and it just generates the clicks. And I'm like, God. So anyways, so we went and we implemented all of that stuff. And then what else in terms of, in terms of you that? Know, just I want to I drill a little deeper on something that you said, sure. because I think it's such a big deal. I was actually having a conversation with my brother-in-law who is looking to kind of migrate from his job to being his own small business owner. He wants to open a Brazilian jiu-jitsu studio mm-hmm. and, you know, he's been looking into that. I'm a four-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and he is my coach. He's a black, he's the first, first-stripe black belt and, and I'm under him. And so he is like, all right, Andrew, you're going to run the kids' classes because I have all the kids and I know how to like work with <laughs> kids. Because you're basically can... running the kids' jiu-jitsu classes in your house all day long anyways. <laughs> exactly. So Ryan just like, you know, I love, I love jiu-jitsu and I want to make that my career, but I just don't want to run the kids' classes. And, we, you know, we talked about all sorts of different things related to that. But in the end, the conclusion was, Ryan, you need to run the kids' classes for the simple, you know, uh, my brother-in-law's name is Ryan as well, by the way. So, uh, good company, good name. I was like, you need to run the kids classes so that you can teach others like how your process or like what, how, what you want them to do or so that you can know what is working right. and what's not working and how kids learn and other things like that. Just enough to be dangerous. You know, I mm. totally don't mind teaching kids classes because half the kids in the class are probably going to be mine, but um, I, <laughs> uh, but I think that it's one of those things that as, as a leader, you do really need to understand enough to be dangerous in, mm. you know, any call. area that you hire someone. If, and and you know, I, I am very dangerous as Sean will attest to, as I seemingly don't ever remember how to duplicate ad sets and I just go and make edits and then wake them up <laughs> in a rage on a Saturday night. As he yeah. has to fix them, but yeah, a hundred percent. And so we've worked with enough consultants over the years where, and not just consultants, but technical engineers where we didn't have somebody higher than them on our staff. And then they would just go on for eight months in the wrong direction and nobody would know what they were doing. So that was, that was the first step. And then leveraging my experience with mobile games and user acquisition with mobile games to really understand that what you were talking about at much more than a surface level was very valuable information. And then again, I just got the numbers back. I saw that we were looking at 40 cents, 45 cents per email acquisition on our Facebook forms. We were looking at landing page costs of, I think our we set up landing pages. And so again, I went a little bit far out there, but we ran ad campaigns with a survival game. There's like, there's survival, there's exploration, there's combat, there's crafting, there's building. There's a bunch of areas of survival games that people really enjoy. And so we read and we ran ad campaigns, reaching out to each of those groups of people and then created landing pages that were all thematically geared towards those group of people, sending traffic from the ads to the landing pages, seeing the conversions, which I was super skeptical. I saw email kind of like direct mail. I was like, nobody opens these things. Nobody subscribes <laughs> to these things. And then when I was proved wrong, 
with the results of 40 to 45 cents when we were going through what we call in the mobile space, our golden cohort, which is like the, the first group of ravenous people that'll click on anything that has to do with survival um, and landing pages of uh, you know $2 or whatever it was. I was like, okay, these guys know what they're doing. It works. I can see the numbers. And then after that, it was like, now I, the main thing as a leader is like, I don't need to be doing this for six hours a day. I can't put the attention I need to bring that from $2 down to what are we at on our landing page costs, Sean? Sean is on fire this week when it comes to that. <laughs> Last I see here is uh, $1.14. $1.14. We have got our landing page costs per email down to 97 cents some days, like bonkers yeah. effective. So Sean is like, that man is a machine running ad campaign after ad campaign after ad campaign trying different audiences and so every day i see what i would have been doing not as well but and i'm like now i get to do all of this other stuff instead and so the other thing is just looking at the service that you guys are providing and evaluating how much is my time worth compared to how much you guys are charging and luckily you guys are super fair and just really really great to work with you're not some New York ad firm that's on the 72nd floor charging me for your rent. Basically, you guys are, you guys are within our, our budget. And more, most importantly, the value that you provide is much greater than the cost that I would have to expend myself to do the work. And so that was the last thing that I did was just, okay, cost versus what the value of my time is. And it was a, it was a net positive by a long shot. Yeah. And then I just reached out and it was, okay, I need you to run my Facebook ads. I want you to do my email list. I want you to optimize my landing pages. I even want to pay extra so I can talk to Sean every Friday because I get lonely <laughs> at the end of the week. And <laughs> if, if, if Rick was there too, sometimes it would be even better. But once in a while, Andrew shows up and I feel like the king of the world. So, and then, and then we, we, we changed over the course of the, of the month or two. We're like, okay, in terms of, how board games and video games are different. I need to be in control of the email side of things because the messaging is and the language is so specific that for me to have an authentic connection with that reader, I need mm -hmm. to be writing this as a, as a gamer and as a game developer. But in terms of the Facebook ads, mm -hmm. it's just, you guys are killing it. And it's again, four hours of my day, two hours of my day that I'm not sitting there with F5, 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 just <laughs> yeah. seeing yeah. the numbers go up and down and just sitting in an, in an anxiety induced coma, trying to get us from two dollars down to a dollar fourteen. And yeah. one thing that we learned about your ad campaign that we we fully realized, we always had a suspicion of this, but it really was confirmed with the, your campaign was that we saw a greater conversion rate when we really married up the imagery and messaging of the ad with the landing page, specifically the splash image, the image on the fold. So we ran several different videos. Some of them showed uh, different opening shots. One was like a tower, uh, the, you know, the Viscom tower. One was like mutants. One was different scenery. And so basically that, that first opening scene, we then directed people from those videos to landing pages, which had that image. And we saw greater conversion rates as a result. So I think we have, we're currently running three or four landing pages or the same text, just different imagery with different ads. and we found a bit of conversion rates doing that. So that's been very interesting to discover. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just give a shout out to the plugin. I know that Sean has had some technical difficulties with it, but there is a WordPress plugin called Thrive Architect that I would recommend through and through. I know that Sean hasn't 
dove too deep into it yet because we're just getting the individual landing pages set up now, but their A-B testing backend is, it's so easy to use. It's so wonderful to set up. And so once we're done kind of really settling in on the, the kind of base for these four landing pages that Sean has created, I'm really excited to A-B test because, you know, it's, you're, you're, you're optimizing at both ends. And that's another thing that really uh, attracted me to you guys is I could tell that you guys were min-maxers. That's a term we use in the yeah. games industry. Like you guys were, it was all about just optimize, 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 optimize. And I'm the, I'm the exact same way. Like I, I will sit and optimize my, my, my cupboard at home where I keep my plates and my dishes just to make it so I save like this 10th of a second when I'm putting dishes away. <laughs> and I could see that with you guys too. And that's what got me so excited to see it in action with Sean is that we are optimizing a lot of the Facebook ads. And now I think we have the Facebook stuff in a pretty good spot. We've experimented with certain things that didn't work, got certain things that do work. And now we've got this whole other side with the landing pages that we can even optimize even more. So 75 cents, Sean, here we come. Yep. <laughs> that's awesome. You know, um, it's been fun because, well, you know, after you launch and fund and you get all of your final backer count and everything like that. You export that email list. We're going to actually be able to see how many people that came from mm -hmm. these ads actually ended up backing and how much did they back for and, and that sort of thing. And for, um, you know, just, I, I did this recent test with deliverance and we had like a 21.3% conversion rate from That's email to bonkers. backers. That's bonkers. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And uh, I did this huge um, study of before, you know, like the three months leading up to launch. And that was 21.3% conversion rate. The average spend was a dollar higher than the the uh, campaign average. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, what happened before that? And, you know, we did this, you know, tons of stuff. But I, I'm really intrigued to see what level of commitment these people will have, you know. Um, so, yeah. I mean, so for us, we can't get that information right now, but we can get engagement. And it's not just about the engagement and, and kind of backing from these people. What we want to do is we also want to segment them out to figure out the people that come from the landing pages versus the people that come from, let's say, uh, organic Google search versus mm -hmm. the Facebook. Like the big interesting thing for me is the difference between the Facebook forms versus the landing pages. We know that the landing pages are a higher quality, but there's so many factors that play into it. Um, right now, after we probably acquired about eight or 9,000 emails through Facebook forms directly, and after that amount, and we're targeting pretty hard to our demographic, now our costs have gone from 40 cents to about a dollar two. So at this point, it doesn't make any sense to use Facebook forms compared to the landing pages. But what we've done in the beginning, and this was part of me, like even after I hired you guys, I wasn't done testing you guys out. I was gonna push a little bit and see if things were gonna hold up under strain. And so what I did is I ran a campaign with only landing page people and only Facebook form people. And it was a really interesting test that the open rates were about 10% higher with the, uh, Facebook, with the landing page people. But the click-through rates were at least 115% higher with the landing page people than they were with the Facebook form people. And the unsubscribe rates 
were 10 times higher with the Facebook form people than they were. And none of these are surprising. The only, th the only surprising thing is the open rate. I was expecting a larger difference between the open rates. So not, nothing surprising that the landing page people are more invested and whatnot. But I do find the numbers themselves to be really interesting in terms of that. And then like how the real much number more invested they were. Right. right. In terms of clicking. Um, and we've had this conversation in one of our meetings about why the open rates were probably similar with just the way that emails pop up in people's phones and everything else. Um, but the, the obviously the true test is what's the backer rate going to be like for these people. So the uh, so the, the, the interesting thing, of course, is back then we were looking at paying three times as much for a landing page email as we were for a uh, Facebook form email. So the net might've been a little bit skewed, but now that we've really dialed in those landing pages, and now that we've kind of exhausted our golden cohort for Facebook forms, now it's like a no brainer whatsoever. Yeah. And so it was, it was just a really, really great piece of validation to run that test and see those numbers. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. Please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.